Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sunday School, a Bible study podcast brought to you by The Pillar. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. And I'm Kate Oliveira. And we're joined by our Sunday School teacher, Dr. Scott Powell. Kate, doesn't Scott look nice today? You look very nice. You're all dressed you up. You dressed up for this podcast? You got podcast? someplace to go? Well, our first, our first episode was during the summer, so I had my summer outfit on, but now I'm actually teaching. So oh, because Scott, uh, our Sunday school teacher, Dr. Class. Scott Powell, is a professor of theology at St. John Vianney Seminary in Denver, Colorado. That's right. And so Scott is wearing a tie and other sort of uh, professional... He's wearing... Actually, what Scott is wearing You just is, made it sound super weird. Yep, I guess. <laughs> wearing a other, white shirt and a tie. But on top prof- of that, he's wearing uh, like his doctoral robes oh and uh, they hood. They are and hanging Do you wear you. that all the time, your doctoral no, hat? I would like to, though. They are hanging behind you for the opening of the year convocation mass that we have tonight, but oh, uh, I am great. not wearing them okay. every day. Enough I with the chit-chat, Scott. Let's get to the Bible. <laughs> Scott, wow. what are we going to be doing? We This is our second episode, episode two, if you will, of... Uh, of our um, Sunday school course on the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. Our first episode was kind of an intro to Romans. And then our second episode, you might think we're starting at the beginning, but that's uh, not true, right, Scott? Am I correct that we are starting at the end? So we're going to start by looking at chapters 14 through 16. Great. Here is the Pillars Ed Condon with chapters 14 through 16. Uh, And as always, if you've already done the readings or you would like to skip over the readings, you can jump ahead to the 1115 mark in this episode. That's 1115. Here's Ed. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Each person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and of the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or you, Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know, and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, 
but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles, and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you all with joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way round to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered in coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain, and to be helped on my journey there by you, once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. When, therefore, I have completed this, and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, 
to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. I commend you to our servant Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever way she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronchius and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stychus. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the Church of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore, through Jesus Christ. Amen. And we're back after having heard the word of God as proclaimed by the Pillars on Ed Condon. So, Scott, why have we started at the end? Yeah. So what is happening? What on? What's the deal with that? So there's a, a wonderful book that I just want to mention, although I don't think this, this idea originates with him. There's a, a Protestant scholar I like named Scott McKnight, mm -hmm. and he has a great book called Reading Romans Backwards, yeah. which he, he kind of uh, really pushes this idea. But I, Do you know what you call him when he's in a bad mood? Um, the Dark McKnight. No, that's good. Sounds like you know a, what you call him when he wakes up? 
The Dark McKnight Rises. <laughs> oh, my goodness. How many more? Do I don't know the there? name of any other Batman movies, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. What do you call him when he's born? I don't know. McKnight Begins? Isn't there McKnight a Batman Begins? Begins? Yes, there is. <laughs> it doesn't work Right, because way. it's actually, yeah. Batman, but once know. again, Scott asked a question in Sunday school, and I do not know the answer. That is actually <laughs> why we have brought on my co-host, <laughs> I Kate asked Oliveira, Kate. because I was Kate tired of Kate one who didn't know the answer. Really every single Scott, what is happening here? Stop screwing around and let's get to the Bible. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, so in a certain sense, the reason that we're reading uh, the Book of Romans backwards, in a certain sense, is to save us from fatigue, right? And what I mean by that is that um, Romans is Paul's longest letter. And I don't think we talked about this last time, but did we talk anything about how uh, Paul's letters are arranged in the New Testament? From short, longest to shortest. Okay, so we mentioned that. So it's placed first. It's not chronologically the first, but it's placed first in the canon of Paul's letters. The second longest letter, 1 Corinthians, and the second longest, the third longest letter, 2 Corinthians. Oh, oh, yes, sorry. then Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Roman Catholic Gentiles eat pork chops too. Yeah. I don't know what that's, that means. That's the mnemonic for remembering the letters. Romans, oh. Corinthians, Galatians. Ephesians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, first and second Thessalonians, first and second Timothy, Titus Philemon. Yeah, there's a lot of T's that are yeah. shoved into that too. Um, yeah, Roman Catholic Gentiles eat pork chops too because they're not held by kosher anymore. Anyway, um, that aside, um, if you look at the history of the study of the book of Romans, so if you were to go into any kind of academic library or seminary library. We happen to be in a seminary. There's so many books that have been written on the book of Romans. Yeah. So many doctoral dissertations and commentaries. Luther, and right? L- Luther was a big Romans guy. Luther. And I'm going to talk about Luther in a, a minute because okay. uh, he had a, what I think is a slightly, well, he had a lot of problematic views in my opinion. Yeah. Um, but there's something that he did with Romans that I think is is particularly wrongheaded. And actually it was, it was really Philip Melanchthon who championed this false idea, um, which we'll get to in a second. But if you go to most of those commentaries in those books, they tend to, if you read them carefully, kind of peter out by chapter 11 or so, which if you think about it is really a shame. So I, I do a lot of mountain climbing and I like the outdoors. And um, if you guys climb mountains before? Have yeah. you ever done a, a famous Colorado 14er? Yeah. Are you talking about a false summit here? Talking about a false summit. Yeah, yeah exactly right. So yeah. I think there is some false summits in scholarly uh, writing on the Book of Romans. And some people think that we've reached the summit when there's a whole lot more books. Oh, a false summit is when we think we've gotten to the top, but we have more climbing to do. There's more climbing to do. Yeah. But oftentimes when you I get feel to that the... way when I'm in the parking lot, actually. Well, <laughs> well actually walking wow. up to the seminary yeah, like, okay. to record this podcast. Fourteener. <laughs> How <laughs> much longer? <laughs> you drove up a fourteener recently, didn't you? I did. I'm not making fun of you for that. I'm not, I'm not judging you for that. I'm just that that, that wasn't meant to be. <laughs> this is all no, I got out. I rode around the top in a little sco- electric scooter that I have for, for such circumstances. <laughs> There's no shame in that. We've all been there. Um. Anyway, so yeah. I, long story short, you tend to get a lot of scholarship on the first kind of eight or nine chapters and you miss and people will say like, well, he talks about just some practical applications then for the rest of the book. But Mm -hmm. that's a lot of chapters to talk about just practical applications. And one of the things that we've already talked about in this podcast, I think, is that when Paul writes a letter, this is one of the tricky parts of, well, yeah, we talked about this last time. We talked a lot about the nature of letters and how on a certain level you could see it almost as an inefficient way to do theology. 
Um, I was thinking, I don't think we said this in the podcast last time, but I was thinking about, um, there's a couple of Paul's letters where he says things like, remember all of the things which I taught you, which tells us that at some point in time, Paul probably taught like an intro to Christianity class or or something, right, to these church communities. We don't have any of that. We don't have that class. We don't have that curriculum. We don't have the content of any of that stuff. He simply says in his letters, hey, remember all of the stuff. And then stuff like, oh, by the way, you know, can you get me my coat that I forgot at so-and-so's house? And all of the theology, I mean, really, this is the church's primary theologian. This is the first step in all of our Catholic theology. And all of that theology finds itself embedded in these messy letters to communities that are usually fighting with each other and you know, personalities and and just the messy stuff of pastoral life where we are given the hard challenge as a church to try to dig out and unpack all of the theology that's in there because Paul didn't write a, a theological treatise. He didn't give us an RCAA class, right? He gives us letters that are embedded in messy human stories. And JD, you really beautifully said last time how appropriate that is for a faith that's by its nature incarnate. Because that means the theology is incarnate in these communities and stuff. Yeah. So um, Paul's letters are occasional, meaning he writes for particular occasions. Rarely does Paul just write a letter because he happened to be thinking and of some stuff. And that's a good thing, right? That's that's true. It's it true simply is a thing. I don't know if it's good but or bad. It's, 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 it's true. a true statement. Okay. Great. Yeah, it's a true statement that Paul writes usually to put out a fire or to solve a dispute or to call somebody out, you know, who's misbehaving or something like that. Yeah. He doesn't just say, hey, there's a bunch of theology I want no, to like, share with you. This Here is you Paul's go. Christmas letter. This year we all... Yeah. <laughs> no, he, yeah, he doesn't do that. Yeah. Um, he writes to really messy situations in the church, um, dealing with pastoral issues. And that's where we get all the theology. It's embedded in that. Yeah. Because it's what's what's underneath that. Now, if you go into a lot that's of those— That's really interesting because that speaks actually to Paul holding— maybe I don't want to be sort of anachronistic here, but that speaks to the way in which the apostles held a, Christ, a Catholic view of revelation, of divine revelation, right? That like it wasn't as if the apostles perceived themselves as— writing out oh. um, sort of scripture, which would contain everything in Revelation, but that scripture interplaying with their own teaching, which now we would call sacred tradition. Like there's this, yeah, probably. hey, scripture is referencing, it's not entirely self-referential and self-contained, but referencing this thing, which now we would call sacred tradition, a font of revelation, and there's yeah. some interplay there. And then Paul, as a bishop, is sort of interpreting between those two things, precisely as is the divine charism of the magisterium. Yeah. I think that's right. So a whole, all of sort of like... All of all of the church's theology of revelation is probably laid out in Paul's own understanding of his relationship between his texts and his teaching. Maybe or I, I wonder about that. If that's really, I mean, I guess we're left to. Yeah, I I I, I think that makes sense. I mean, I'm sure Paul didn't. Con- I don't know if he's but conscious. Of I this. I doubt that Paul considered yeah. his own work to be. I wonder if Paul considered that he was contributing to a canon of scripture. He's got a fairly big head at points. <laughs> so I mean, I, if yeah, anybody could right. see that, it could be Paul. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, but that being said, um, a lot of scholars don't really see what the occasion was for Romans because partially because, and this goes back to why are we doing it backwards? Because it's so long. 
And it's hard to kind of keep a consistent strain of thought through a text that's that long. And it's complicated, and there's a lot of things that he says. Um, Philip Melanchthon, who was kind of a disciple of Martin Luther, championed what's what's known as the compendium view, is that, well, what is the Book of Romans? It's just a big compendium of Christian doctrine. It's where we get Christian doctrine. It's about Jesus and our relationship with him, and that's what it is. And isn't it beautiful? As if there wasn't a fire to put out in Rome, as if there wasn't something in dispute that Paul's trying to solve back in the church community. And it, it makes the letter into something that it's not. There's uh, you Are you guys familiar with the Roman road? Is it? You both heard of it. That's fine. A road? No. Is it what the Good Samaritan? No. Yes. Rome built roads. Okay. They were, weren't built in a day. They weren't built in a day. I say that much right now. What's that? They weren't built in a day. Oh, that's good. No, there are a lot of Roman roads. Rome built lots of roads. Oh, yeah. But the quote unquote Roman road is something that exists um, in, a, in the Protestant tradition, which oh, is no. oh, kind yeah, of an you apologetic. Said, you should have said Sorry. the Via Romani, or I would have known. I wouldn't know that. Oh, well, the I'm used to call it the Via Romani. They totally. Do. Do they? No, I just want to. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never going to use Latin. All the Protestants listening to this podcast are <laughs> we do not screaming at JD right now. I object. <laughs> Heaven forbid we talk in Latin. Uh, the Roman road, basically what the Roman road is, it was very popular for a long time. It's probably not as used anymore, uh, okay. not as well used anymore. But for a long time, it was a big apologetic and um, used to try to help convert people and bring them into the faith in Jesus Christ. Um, but it basically was taking four passages from the book of Romans and using them to basically prove the gospel, right? Oh. Um, and it's like a step-by-step process. So oh. like step one is like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're all sinners. And then the second one is if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord, then we'll be saved. And it's like, and therefore Jesus has saved us. And now we don't need to fear death or, or in principalities or anything else. Um, so it's a little four-step process that says, okay, we're all sinners. If we profess Jesus, then we'll be saved and everything will be cool, which is fine. And I'm sure God has done great good in people's lives through the Roman road. But I will go so far as to say that most of those passages are taken wrenched totally out of their context and don't exactly mean what people want them to mean. Um, and I just want to read this because I think it's so problematic and I, I kind of, it's frustrating. And it says, uh, this is a Protestant scholar who, um, writing an introduction to the book of Romans, he says, Romans, the great letter of the apostle Paul can be summarized, um, in chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because of the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This book is the systematic laying out of the gospel and how it applies to our life. And therefore, there is one book in the New Testament to study and grasp the big picture of doctrine and the gospel and its application to our lives. It is this book. Which is, in a certain sense, to miss the point of why Paul is writing a letter to the Romans, to the church in Rome. Because again, this, and I, I like this uh, quote because it, it encapsulates what a lot of people believe. What Philip Melanchthon, who was sort of the disciple of Martin Luther, championed. It is the compendium. If you want to learn the Christian faith, read Romans and you're good to go. Mm. Okay, so if it's not that, what can you learn from reading Romans? What's beautiful, what is the point? What is Paul doing? What's beautiful about this book is that, and how it applies to our lives, is that the, there are serious pastoral issues happening in this church, maybe more serious than any of the other churches. Well, that's subjective. Some serious stuff is going on. And Paul uses the occasion of real problems, real strife, real people having real liturgical and ethnic fights with each other, which is the stuff that we all experience every day to bring to bear the church's theology and the gospel message onto those circumstances. Mm. So he brings out this 
profoundly important theology to deal with real, messy, real-life problems. But if we miss the real-life problems, we're going to miss kind of what's being said. Does that mm. make sense? I, it does. Does so, Romans 14 through 16, which we read, kind of lay out some of that? Romans stuff? 14 through 16 is the so what. Mm. So he has this long letter in which he's unpacking who Jesus is and what the gospel is and why it matters. And then by the time he gets to chapter 14, he gives the, okay, so this is how this applies to your situation. But again, most scholars have already been exhausted by the time they get to chapter 14 to lose the point of what Paul was saying in the first place. Or do they just dismiss that because they're like, this applied to a, a community in a specific time, in a specific place that we aren't in? That could be. Yeah. My suspicion is that it's less of that. Yeah. Because it doesn't even get mentioned. Oh, okay. And I think a lot of folks get to chapter 14 and either they're just tired and like, he's just talking about practical things. Or we don't really write about it because we're struggling to figure out how does this apply to me? Because all yeah. the other stuff seems kind of universal. Now he's talking about meat and days of the week, and I don't really see what that has to do with me. So we'll just kind of call it an appendix. Mm. We'll put it as a footnote, and then we can deal with the really important So a lot stuff. of people get Romans wrong. They see it as a compendium. We're not going to so. make that mistake. 14 no. through 16 is the so what for us. So so what's the so what? So we, we talked about this, I think, at the end of last week's or last time's episode about the time period that this is probably being written into, right? Do you remember this? Um, the early church. 60. So two important 67. years. 67. Bam. Yeah. Nope. Nero. No, no, no. The two years. <laughs> really bad at this. No, it's okay. You're, you guys are awesome. The two years that I want you to remember are the year 49. 49. And 54. I 54. thought 54. Yeah. 1054. Great schism. Thousand years before that. Book of Romans. What? 10, oh, 1054. Yeah, you're right. That was the thousand yeah. years before that was the book of Romans. By the way, I want to come back to something you said last episode. The church in Rome predates Paul. Uh -huh. So most of the letters that Paul writes are to church communities that he's either founded himself or has some really personal interaction with. Yeah. And I think we talked last time how Paul has never been to Rome yet. Yeah. He hasn't been there. He's Lame. coming. You should go to Rome if you haven't been. You've What's, never been to Rome. I've been to Rome. Oh. I've been to Rome. Have you ever been times. to Rome? Once for a couple days. Did you write a letter beforehand announcing uh, your arrival you and giving them a lot of theology? Okay. Yes. Well, you haven't been, so you can. The most important part of my letter was the end, and no one even paid attention. I know. To that, See, so. that's what I'm so sick about. <laughs> yeah. Um, you just mentioned sort of offhandedly, JD. So he's writing this letter partially to prepare them because I'm coming to visit you, and here's some things I want you to know about. Uh -huh. um, I'm gluten intolerant. Um, <laughs> it's not that you can't have it in the house, but it just is a problem for me. That's, yeah. Just personally, <laughs> I feel things like that for was, you to know about. I feel like that's like, pretty, what we tell people before we go to visit. Them. Pretty on the nose. Uh -huh. um, Peter was probably not there. When Paul writes this letter, oh. and you just kind of offhandedly mentioned like St. Peter having this letter read to the congregation or something. Right. And I was thinking about it afterwards, and nobody knows for for sure. Um, I don't think Peter founded this church either, by the way. Nobody knows. This is one of the mysteries of the book of Romans. Nobody knows exactly who founded the church in Rome. Oh. Um, it just sort of shows up, huh. and we're not entirely sure. Some people think Peter might have. There's a tradition that Peter came to Rome in the 40s, but not necessarily. Is it possible that, that because it? Rome was a sort of global capital that... Christians from the hinterlands who had business in Rome just were going back and forth. So Christianity, rather than Rome being evangelized, Christianity just came by way of trade routes to, to Rome. I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the things about that is that we do know from Acts of the Apostles that there were Jews from Rome there at Pentecost. And weren't, first they, Pentecost. weren't they, we're going to talk about this, I presume, but they were chased out of Rome by... Emperor, oh, that's Emperor, what we're talking about. Yeah, oh, okay. von Baron or whatever. <laughs> yes, von Baron. Baron, Baron von Steuben <laughs> right. chased him out. Yeah. 
Um, in any in any case, I just wanted to clarify. I don't think Peter was in the congregation when Paul writes, and I, okay. I'm pretty definitively know that because at the very end of the letter, Paul gives a lot of greetings. Say hello to so and so, and I greet so and so. Part of who he's greeting are the leaders of the house churches that oh. that are in Rome. Mm-hmm. We know from archaeology that there's at least twelve synagogues that are in Ooh. Rome, so a, a huge Jewish population, and presumably a lot of Christians bo- were born out of that. Uh, but he would have mentioned Peter. Certainly, he would have mentioned the Pope in his greetings yeah. had Peter been there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is a community that's kind of trying to deal with stuff outside of, of apostolic um, authority in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I just wanted to note that. But that being said, in the year 49, something really important happens. And in the year 49, again, we mentioned this last time, the emperor Claudius, who's reigning at the time, kicks out, expels all the Jewish right. population from Rome. Mm-hmm. And for him, remember, Judaism is not a religious designation. It's an ethnic one. Yeah. And it says, the, the the historian Suetonius says that the Jews were expelled because they were fighting over someone named Crestus. Oh, yeah. And there's right. debate over who the, is that, a person named Crestus who's, you know, riling people up. Is it actually just a garbled version of the name Christ? Um, which I think is almost certainly the right. case. Yeah. And Suetonius is just writing a history. But there are Jews, and that means Jewish Christians, and so Jewish believers in Jesus and Jewish non-followers of Jesus, probably fighting over what this means. Maybe they're fighting over liturgical things. They're fighting over circumcision, kosher food laws. There's a lot of things that are being fought about in the early church because, and I was actually just speaking to my students this morning. I teach a Paul class um, for a couple hours this morning. And for so many of Paul's letters, I think the things that we think that Paul is talking about, things like faith versus works, how do you go to heaven and not go to hell? These are not primarily the things that Paul is talking about. He is dealing with the question of what does it mean and how do we get into and become full-fledged members of the family of God? Mm. Because I think when Jesus gives his great commission at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when he says, go out to all the nations and make disciples, I don't think, and I don't mean this pejoratively, I don't think the early church, I don't think the apostles are thinking, we're going to go out to all the non-Jews and all the Gentiles and bring them in. Yeah. I think they're th- hearing there is a lot of Jews that are scattered to the winds in the diaspora and all yeah. these far-flung places. We need to go let our family know that our Jewish Messiah has come finally yeah. and make them disciples of him. Yeah. Because it's not for at least seven chapters of Acts of the Apostles that they even think of leaving Jerusalem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is what we do. This is where we are. The only reason they leave is because they're pushed out by persecution. And then, lo and behold, they're like, oh, I guess we can tell the Gentiles as well. So this isn't on the radar screen. So as soon as Gentiles, non Jews, outsiders, start coming into the family of God, this creates a whole lot of problems and strife and questions and confusion, because what does it mean that these folks are actually part of the family now? Like, do they need to follow the same rules you and I do? Do they need to keep kosher? Do they need to be circumcised? And these are the fights that are going to spring up. Not to mention the fact that, you know, ethnic fights are a real reality. Yeah. And people don't like other people who speak a different language than them oftentimes, who have different skin color, who, who, you know, have different accents, who eat different foods for Pete's sake. I think food is one of the most important things that's going to continually come up in these letters. And we're going to talk about that today. Um, I used to think, take this for whatever you will. I used to think, remember there's a famous scene in Acts of the Apostles where Peter is up on the roof of a guy named, named Simon's house. And well, he receives what I always called the, what's it? That's confusing. It's super confusing. Yeah. But Simon the, the magician? 
No, a different Simon. Yet oh. another Simon. Okay. Simon the Tanner. Oh. But he receives the pigs in a blanket vision. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Where he's, he's yeah. up on the roof and he sees all the sheet coming down with the images of presumably unkosher foods. Mm. And the voice from heaven says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Mm-hmm. And Peter says, no, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that's unkosher or unclean. Um, which I've always sort of heard as, you know, I will not break this theological rule that I am bound to. But the more I thought about it and the more I think of, we think about what culture is like and how intimately food is attached to culture, I bet Peter was utterly disgusted by that. Yeah. Because I've always had this analogy in my head of, it's like if God came to me on Good Friday and said, Scott, I want you to eat a big juicy steak. I'd be like, oh, that sounds really good, but I can't do it. I'm supposed to fast. I would never do that, Lord. But I don't think that's what Peter's experiencing. Like, oh, I really could go for some bacon, Lord, but I'm a good Jew. So, I'm, I mean, I think it was utterly disgusting. Right. And the people who eat bacon, those people with pig breath, mm. like I would never. This is why table fellowship is such a big deal because those people are gross and they eat gross food. I mean, think of all the cultural connections with, with food and how important it is in different parts of the world and how. So, like some people eat horses, but not very many Americans eat horses. And, and we if would God probably... commanded some Americans eat horses, they'd be like, oh, no, I'm not eating a horse. I think that's gross. Horse actually is delicious, but I see the point. Or there's people Scott in parts, of, face there's people in parts of Asia that think we're disgusting for eating cheese. Yeah. They're like, or... they're, here, let's take this milk and rot it and curdle it and then put it on your sandwich. Some people eat like crickets or whatnot. All sorts of things. Yeah. Some people. I don't know who, but I've seen on the TV. Is that, do you eat crickets, Kate? No, That's, you just said I, you ate horse and liked it. Horse so is I, awesome. I, I you just gave a look it. that made me think that there's a joke that I don't get. That's fine. Um, but here's the thing. Oftentimes, and this is just this is just the case, right? Oftentimes with food that we think is disgusting, a lot of people, I think it's very easy to associate the people who eat that food, therefore, are kind of gross. Disgusting. Right? Yeah. yeah. They are this socioeconomic class, or they are this culture, and I think that's weird. Or these. There's a ton eat- of elitism about, in America, one real thing, forget about the horse, there's a ton of elitism about processed food, right? Like, oh, sure. There's I a wasn't whole, even thinking there's about a whole religious yeah. cult about only eating organic food yeah. and, like, not eating, like... Whole foods. Yeah, only eating whole foods. Brilliant. And, like, here, if God, there are certain people for whom... If God appeared and was like, eat this spaghetti 7 Eleven cheeseburger. Yeah, you'd be like, I would never. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even know 7 Eleven had cheeseburgers. Oh, they're actually they're awesome. hot dogs. They're super good. You, they're like frozen, and then you put them in that 7 Eleven microwave. You know what I'm talking about? They, I see. I'm having a visceral reaction <laughs> because I'm super bougie. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, gosh. Well, but, but this is what you're talking but about. This is what I'm talking about. Yeah. And those people who might eat, or, you know, there's people in the parts of this country who eat like possum and squirrel. Uh-huh. Like, that's, that's actually a real thing. Yeah. But like those people are a different kind of class than yeah. us other people. So oftentimes, and this is why it's really important, because you can read these things that are going on in the New Testament and in the letters or actually the apostles and think, oh, these are theological issues that have to be worked out. And there are food laws and there are kosher things. And we're trying to work this stuff out. But it's to ignore how deeply embedded the cultural human realities of that stuff is. Mm-hmm. And the reason that the Jews and the Gentiles have such a hard time with each other is because in a lot of ways we don't we think those people are gross and we don't like those people and they're going to if we invite them to our house for dinner and we have to have table fellowship they're going to bring those gross foods and I know maybe it's theologically acceptable but they're still gross and those people are gross because they eat these things and this is this is a serious thing right and if we divorce those real human realities from what's going on in the letter then we reduce them to theological abstractions mm-hmm. and that's what we can't do mm-hmm. and that's what the church is wrestling with so when paul when the new testament letters for example 
are talking about all of these issues, they're not merely about how do you go to heaven and how do you not go to hell. They're not merely about dealing with theological points from the Old Testament versus New Testament. They're how do you get in and what does that mean? What does that mean that we let these people into the church? Imagine at your parish, and just this is a weird example, but take it for whatever you will. And this isn't the right this isn't the right analogy because it doesn't theologically work for us, but I want to I want to problematize it a little bit because I want us to feel what the early church felt. Imagine that an entire mosque shows up at your parish on Sunday and they're like, look, we've been studying, we've been praying together, we have fallen in love with the Catholic Church, we think this is the truth and we want to be received. And your pastor is like, praise be to God, um, let's baptize them and everyone come up and receive communion at communion time. That sounds awesome. Just like that, though. Just is what like you, that, though. Yeah. So some people might say, wow, that's really beautiful. Others would be like, wait, hold on, man. Shouldn't like, they go through RCA? Like, like, you can't just RCA. show up. Yeah. And you probably have a diversity of reactions. Now, again, that doesn't theologically work, but it's the kind of shock to the system that a bunch of Gentiles en masse showing up would feel like. Well, you're not circumcised. Like, you didn't do all these laws. I like, think do that you very honestly does through? exist in a lot of American parishes that. A, a, a very honest pastoral reality that I think some of the priests who listen to this show or people who work in parishes might acknowledge is that there is there are real tensions in many contemporary American parishes between the tr- the customary white congregation and the and an influx of Hispanic parishioners who have different culture, different food, different. I think that's a very real modes of worship. Now, it's very real thing, not the same, but it is it is a real pastoral experience that American the American church is experiencing. Right now. Right. And actually, what's super interesting about it, if I can go on a tangent, is there are even Hispanic parishes that are like customarily customarily sort of Hispanic American parishes that are now dealing with giant influxes of immigrants who have different cultures than established Hispanic American communities. And that in itself creates the same kind of real tension. tension. Just between yeah. these are different people, they do things differently. And we have this vague sense, maybe in all of those senses, maybe this is what you're getting at, that maybe we can't trust those people or maybe... Um, I'm sure that's there, but I get more of a sense, and that, it's complicated. I mean, yeah, this, right, is, this exactly, is just yeah. to say it's it's yeah. really complicated. Yeah. And if honestly, if we can get that, then these letters are going to be a lot more fruitful. Because that is what Paul is addressing: is this right. and we don't have gentilization of the way, which is effectively yeah. prior to this a Jewish experience. Yes. So, and and again, did, if we the, can get that, the, book then of Romans, the analogies make more sense. Does the Book of Romans precede the Council of Jerusalem, at which Peter and Paul had an argument about whether Jewish converts had to do Excuse me, Gentile converts had to do Jewish stuff? I, I think it comes afterwards. Comes afterwards, okay. And uh, there's a, well, I know we're not studying Galatians, but a lot there's a lot of dispute and um, debate over whether the book of Galatians, which deals with a lot of the same themes, just in a yeah. shorter letter, comes before or after the Council of Jerusalem. Yeah. And there are some who, I think it actually comes uh, beforehand, but not for the reason that a lot of scholars do. And a lot of folks say, well, it couldn't have possibly come after the Council of Jerusalem because at the Council of Jerusalem, they dealt with all this stuff and they said, this is how Gentiles come in. They're not bound to the kosher food laws and the circumcision. Therefore, if there's a church that's still fighting about that stuff, it had to have been before this. And those of us who are living in the wake of Vatican II or any church council in the history of the church, we know that what church councils fundamentally do is open the door for a bunch of people to fight about things for a long time. So the fact of, yes, I think this does come after the Council of Jerusalem. So you would think to yourself, man, I thought the council figured all this out. They solved all these problems. Why are we still debating this stuff? 
well, welcome to living as a Catholic in 2023, right? Right. Um, so yes, I think this stuff has been ironed out, which is why Paul has the sort of authority and credibility to say the things that he says. But again, the debate is not necessarily, can they be Christian or not? But it's kind of what kind of Christians ought they be? It's not necessarily, there's probably, you mentioned the trust. Maybe there's some of that. I mean, there's probably almost certainly some of it. But I think more, more like, than that, it's like, well, but you're not the same status as us. Like, you can still be in the family of God, but... You can't like, be priests. You can't be... Yeah, maybe that kind of stuff. Or like, yeah. this is our parish. Yeah. This is oh, our parish. Yeah. Like, you're welcome to come. And but is that what Paul is addressing specifically in 14 through 16? Ah, okay. 49, they're all kicked out. All the Jews are gone. So as you said... And I already mentioned there was at least 12 named synagogues that we've discovered archaeologically in, in Rome, which means there's probably more, which means there's a massive population. So whatever the church looked like, it was like every other ecclesial reality in the world at the time. It was Jewish, right? The priests were Jewish. The bishops were Jewish. The deacons, with some exceptions, some of them were Gentiles. And that's kind of why deacons came about, was to deal with the Gentiles who were being forgotten. There's another great example of food and Gentiles and this weird interaction so that people don't want to give and help out the Gentile members of the church. So the deacon, diaconate had to be established so people didn't get lost. Mm. Um, again, that's a whole different conversation. But in 49, they're all out. They're all kicked out of the city. That's, remember, uh, Paul in chapter 18 of Acts meets Prisca and Aquila, or Priscilla and Aquila, who had been kicked out of Rome because Claudius had, uh, had, had cast them all out. So 49, they all leave. 54, Claudius is dead. A new emperor has risen to power called Nero, and they're allowed to come back. There's kind of an amnesty, right? So that means in the intermediary time, in the intervening time, uh, five years or so, what is the church? What happens to the church? Well, all that's left are the Gentiles. And again, we know that Rome is a very cosmopolitan place. There's people coming and going from all over the place. I have no doubt that even some of the synagogues had uh, Gentile proselytes or people who were God-fearers who were kind of, you know, part of the community peripherally or otherwise. So this isn't an uncommon reality, but now they're in charge of everything. They're mm -hmm. the only ones left. Mm -hmm. So now they're the priests and they're the bishops and they're the house church leaders and they're the hosts and they're everything. So by 54, when the Jews come back, you get the sense, and again, throughout the whole letter, this is all in between the lines, sometimes explicitly, sometimes not in between the lines. You get the impression that they're all coming back saying basically, hey, thank you guys for holding down the fort. We really appreciate it. It's really good to be back. And now we're happy to take all the authority back because we're the true heirs of this stuff. So oh. like, thanks for holding down the fort, you guys. We're, we're ready to, to get back to normal. So would it be like a pastor of a parish goes on sabbatical, the associate <laughs> comes over. in and kind of takes over and Dang, girl, look at you some... with your analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's more, change the analogy. Yes, sort of. Yeah. Say that he is... This is miserable. Why do you make this? <laughs> Why do I do that? <laughs> but say that that pastor is forced by his bishop or somebody to have to leave for a while. It's oh. not just they choose to take a sabbatical. They're removed from ministry for some reason. So they didn't choose to leave. That might have turned out to be illegitimate. Like they didn't do anything wrong, but mm -hmm. still they were forced out. Yeah, like the Jesuits exiled from Nicaragua if they came back sure. to the Jesuit parish. Yeah, parents. exactly. And taken they, over by the Nicaraguan diocese. Yeah, that's a, good, that's a good example. And they come back and they're like, okay, that's a bam. Read the pillar. If you want to know more, I feel like I built, like, set the foundation you for really me. did. <laughs> no. Okay, let's stay on. No, yeah, sorry. But that's right. That's an, but it's an important analogy. So they come back and they're probably like, okay, thanks, you guys. We're, we're happy to take back over. And on the flip side, you know, the, the, 
the parochial vicar, the, the Gentiles who've taken over are like, whoa, 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 like we're happy you're back, but it's been five years and like things are different now. Yeah. And you better get used to it. So yeah. like take your seat because we're in charge now. Yeah. And so there is on the surface this real ethnic dispute of like, who do you think you guys are? Like, you're lucky we let you into the family of God. We've been doing this stuff for thousands of years. And we right. have covenants, we have everything. Like, right. we let you come here. We let you convert. Now you're part of the family. Who do you think you are to take it over? Right. And on the flip side, and again, I'm not just putting words in their mouth. You really do see these things coming out in the letter. And on the flip side, I mean, imagine you have a lot of the Gentiles like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, we're glad you're back, but, you know, who held down the fort for all this time? Who's been responsible? Not to mention the fact that so many of you guys didn't even accept the Messiah. And you're here to criticize us for coming to the party late. How many of you guys rejected the Messiah wholesale? At mm. least we believe, right? Mm -hmm. So you begin to see all of this tension, which has has two different um, manifestations. There is the practical reality of these two groups are fighting. But there's a deeper question, and this is what the book of Romans is all about. This was a very long way into what is Romans about. And what Romans is about is the question of God's integrity. Mm. Because what this does is, yes, there's the real ethnic dispute. There's all the analogies we can think of which are true. But the analogies break down at a point when you realize that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, are the chosen people of God, explicitly stated as such throughout the Old Testament. They are God's special possession, his segula, the, the royal priesthood, the people set apart, right? And if now the people who are God's special possession have been cast out and kicked to the back of the room and have to take the seats in the back of the bus or whatever it is, what does that say about God's promises? Because it's not just we don't like sitting back here. We don't like not being an authority. Yes, I'm sure that's going on. But it does raise the deeper question of, but God promised us that we're his chosen ones. And now what does it mean for God's faithfulness? What does it mean for God's integrity, for God's promises, if the world doesn't look that way anymore? Mm -hmm. Has God forgotten us? Mm -hmm. Has he moved on? Is God that capricious that he would just say, you're my chosen people, and now I've moved on to somebody else? There's a terrible school of theology that exists out there called replacement theology. You guys familiar with that? No. J.D., you have your hand up? Yeah, but go ahead. I have a question, but go ahead. Replacement theology says, in a grossly oversimplified way, um, God chose to work through Israel. They were his chosen covenant people. They failed. So God said, scrap that. Let's move on to somebody else. Maybe they can do better, i.e. the Gentiles. That's Which, awful. As you can see, that's terrible But the church theology. is Israel and Israel is the church. Right. But you can also see, if you're a first century Jewish Christian— and so many of your family have rejected the Messiah, and now the rest of the church is being overtaken by the Gentiles, and all of a sudden the chosen people of God have no status anymore. Yeah. It does raise the important question, like, I know the church is Israel and Israel is the church, but it certainly doesn't look like it. Yeah. It certainly doesn't feel like it. Yeah. So can God be trusted or not? Mm. That's why Paul writes the book. And if you understand why he's writing the book, the theological treatise of it, that God is faithful and trustworthy, and this is how we know that— has it makes more sense it becomes more palatable and it has much more application to yeah. it does that make sense yeah it does. I think okay so. jd you have a question do you think that jesus maybe anticipated that when he talks about when he's with the, in israel and he talks about taking the least place at the banquet and the lowest place at the table oh that specifically Ooh. he he obviously has a gentile subplot throughout yeah, the gospels right. in which he is bringing other sheep in. and oh i that's but i wonder if there's some maybe does paul make reference to that at all he doesn't not explicit not explicitly okay but gosh, that's a really interesting point. I mean, well, anyway, of course the Messiah would know that, of course. Sure. And if you, then you're a Jew, you might think back, like, yeah. well, this is what Jesus said. Right. Um, you can also, and Paul's going to go back to the story of Jacob and Esau and, you know, younger yeah, brothers right. having authority over older brothers and et cetera, et cetera. Oh. So 
lots of things. Okay, so that all of that stuff being said, um, without any of that, I don't think you can make any sense of chapter 14. Yeah. Because look at what chapter 14 says. So chapter 14, verse 1, it says this. Now, again, this is where he gets to the, so what? Now, here's where I'm going to address the stuff that you guys are dealing with. I just gave you a long pastoral letter. Here is, he says, essentially, how it applies to you. Mm. So he says, as for the man who is weak in the faith, welcome him, but not for disputes over opinions. For one man believes <laughs> he may eat anything. <laughs> what? It's just funny that... Uh, Nihil novum sub solis, you know what I'm saying? There's nothing new under the sun. No, there's nothing new under the sun. Right. But again, those analogies to our time only work if you actually understand the original one, I think. Yeah. Because then you're not wrenching it out of context. You're like, oh, I see the analogy. Um, Yeah, for not, not for disputes over opinions. One believes he may eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. So let not him who eats despise who him who abstains, and let not him who abstains pass judgment on him who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the master is able to make him stand. Now, again, if you didn't know the context, I find that a profoundly confusing passage, and one where... I can understand why a bunch of commentaries would just kind of skip it. Yeah. Be like, well, there's some stuff they're dealing with, which we don't know. But, okay, what is he actually saying? As for the man who is weak in faith, there, there's two ways to read this. He's either, and I think either one is legit. Paul is either kind of being tongue-in-cheek and using their own insults of each other mm-hmm. with them, or there's something else going on. So who would, okay, so it says the weak man... One believes he can eat anything, while the weak man eats only vegetables. So who do you think the weak man who eats only vegetables is? The, the Jewish community? The Jews? Why do they eat only vegetables? They're not vegetarians, are oh, they? Oh, yeah. That's... I think you're right, but yeah. I want to I push it. Say you're a Jew who is now a, a Jesus follower, part yeah. of the way. You're part of the Hodos. You're still keeping the law. Well, there's there's a piece of it that's keeping the law, because like this is Deuteronomy, and this is what we do. But there's also, like we said, just the cultural piece. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I find that stuff kind of disgusting. We don't need so I get that you're allowed to eat that stuff, that it's not sinful, but I'm but not going to do it. But I choose not to. So who, are the, vegetable, so who are the vegetable eaters? I think it's the Jews. Why? Why? Because for five years, you have, des- you have obliterated all Jewish infrastructure. So are there kosher food sellers anymore? Are there stores oh. where you can get stuff? In 1 Corinthians, it talks a lot about meat that may have been offered to idols that you yeah. just don't know where it came from. Maybe. So if you can't guarantee that you're going to have kosher meat, because that's what you, even if you right. understand, like, it's not sinful, yeah. but I'm not going to eat it. I mean, it's not sinful for someone who's gluten intolerant to eat gluten, but, but you're not, you're not going to eat it. Yeah. So there's probably some who are saying, look, I'm just not going to eat any meat. Or if you're at somebody's house where you don't know where the meat came from, you're probably just going to eat vegetables. Mm. Um, so you could take it as though the Gentiles are calling them weak, or it's simply the reality that how do they stand sort of politically and ecclesially? They're oh. in the weak position now because oh. they're not in power. Oh, I thought it was because they didn't have enough protein. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. I thought that that's the thing. <laughs> it yeah. could be. But I think it's the power structure. Oh. They're now weak. They don't have yeah, power the authority the leaders anymore. are the lower. And they're the Jews who are keeping kosher. And oh. what, do you, what do you have, though? One believes he can eat anything. This um, is chapter 14. Yeah, and I'm in verse 3. Let not him who eats despise him who abstains. So Gentiles, stop mocking your Jewish brethren because they have different dietary choices than you. Yeah. Like, that's dumb. And if they're keeping kosher, it's because they kept kosher because their family did it because they're being faithful to God. So if they have a distaste for bacon, don't hold it against them because they did it out of faithfulness. Right. And if you're a Jew who is not eating, stop passing judgment 
on the one who eats those things. Oh, because yeah. you might think they're disgusting, and you might think, well, they don't have our tradition. I can't believe that someone would ever... And it's not only Gentiles. It's probably the degree to which Jews are integrating into the Maybe so. predominant cultural motif, right? Maybe so, so which could get you in really hot some water, Some Jewish right? Christians are can't keeping you the thing, and some Jewish Christians are like, well... Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's I think that's very real. Yeah. But this is very like rubber meets the road. Right. Yeah. But again, yeah. I think only the cultural context can get you here. So all of the analogies that we've been making, all of the analogy, analogy, analogies that we've been making, the real analogy is if you receive on the hand, don't judge those oh, who receive. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the, like th this is about sacred eating and keeping sacred covenants, and that's much more significant. It's tied up in cultural things and much more significant. You know, I think, I think that's real. I mean, mm -hmm. I think that's true. Yeah. I, I really do. I think that is an analogy that you could hold up to this. Or one esteems the Latin mass is better than the others, and one passes judgment on those who go to a, a vernacular. I mean, yeah, yeah. again, we got to be careful here. Of course, but, we don't want to lose half our listeners. Right. I, I, I tried to <laughs> ostracize both of them. You're weak. I tried to alienate everybody. Um, so uh, there's that. And then what happens next? Verse 5. It says, one man esteems one day better than another, and another man esteems all days oh, alike. Oh, because some kept, some kept a Sabbath and some didn't. But sure. would some have kept a Sunday? One of the things that I don't know, and I'm not sure, is when, and I, Jody, I was hoping you would know the answer, and I could have just looked it up, when historically Sunday was designated the as the once precept, and for yeah. all day of, obligatory day of worship. My, I bet would be Nicaea. I, I could see that. I think it's yeah. somewhere in that ballpark, which means at this point in time, yeah. there's still there's still some different I have a feeling here. it was crystallizing until Nicaea, and then Nicaea probably. I yeah. imagine that the emperor wanted at Nicaea for them to know yeah. the answer. Yeah. So there's probably Jews who are esteeming the Sabbath. Yeah. The Sabbath is greater than all the other days, and others are saying, well, yeah. no. Is... So again, we're, we're not talking about, because with the wrong analogy, this becomes something that actually is a serious matter for the yeah, church. Yeah, right, yeah. Mm -hmm. But with the right analogy, you're like, yeah. okay, I, I see what you're saying there. Um, again, there's a lot of practicalities that are going on there. By the way, um, and I didn't point this out, um, if you go to the end of the book in chapter 16, which we won't read all of chapter 16, you can listen to Ed beautifully do that, most of the names, um, over half of them, are Greek and Latin names. So when he says, hey, say hello to so-and-so and say hello to this person and that person, they're mainly Greek and Latin. There are some Jewish names still, there are Hebrew names that are in there, but it's mainly Greek and Latin, which again just tells you pretty definitively, evidentially, uh, who the leaders of the churches are, and it's those folks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, then in chapter 15, something really interesting happens, and then this is where I want to, again, we're not going to go too far beyond this. I want to just set the scene, and then next time we'll go into, okay, then Paul begins the argument with yeah. this all floating in the background, mm -hmm. which again, he doesn't need to point this out because this is the air they're breathing. This right. is the stuff of their everyday life. We need to have it pointed out. Um, bu 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 okay, chapter 15, verse 7. Let's, let's go there. Uh, chapter 15, verse 7, it says, Welcome one another, therefore, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became the Christos, that's Jesus, became a servant to the circumcised to show God's faithfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Okay. One of the, the themes in Paul's letter is the idea of glory, doxa, right? God's glory being revealed. Because one of the things we're seeing is that people don't feel like they're living in God's glory. Mm -hmm. We're outcast, we're overshadowed, we're, we're darkened, right? Um, but if you look at this passage, remember in, in chapter 14, he said, welcome the weak man, referring to these Jewish Christians. Now I think he turns directly to uh, both groups and tells them to welcome one another. And it, 
what he says, there's a th- sort of a thesis statement here. It's not the thesis statement, but it is a thesis statement where he basically says, okay, here's what you need to know. Here's how he begins to close everything out before he gives his, okay, hello, goodbye, say hello to grandma, et cetera, et cetera. He says, Christ became a servant, a doulos, slave is really the word, to the circumcised. And who are the circumcised? The, the Jews. Jews. The Jews. Jewish Christians is what he's talking Well, it's all the Jews. Actually, I'm not even going to designate it to that. Jesus became... so. For you Gentiles who might be tempted to think, oh, God has moved on. Like he has rejected those people. Obviously he's rejected them. Look at how many people don't follow Jesus. Look at all the infighting. Even Caesar can see it. Even he kicked them out. So finally we can come into our own. And Paul needs to go back and remind them, no, no, no. Jesus came as a servant primarily, first and foremost, to the circumcised, to the Jews. And he says he did it for two reasons, and he wants you to catch this. He became a servant to the Jews to show what? What are the two things? God's faithfulness. God's, and my, does your translation say faithfulness? Uh, truthfulness. Truthfulness. Oh, which, which you said the whole, was the, is a big question. Yes, and faithfulness works. Actually, Paul will use them interchangeably mm-hmm. because faithfulness, um, Paul will use the term the faithfulness of God. Sometimes he ter- uses the term the righteousness of God. Yeah. And what he means by that terminology is not just God is righteous, he's good, but that God is trustworthy. Oh, what does it mean yeah. to be righteous? That you can trust what he said he would do. Mm-hmm. So he became a, ser- a servant to the Jews to show number one, that God is true. They are the chosen people. They were the segula. They are the people set apart. And Jesus became one of them to demonstrate that. So God is true. He's not forgotten. He's not moved on. Jesus is Jewish. That's number one. And what's the second one? So that Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the Gentiles could glorify God. So you Jews who are thinking, hey, you know, we're happy to have you guys here, but like you belong at the back of the room. But actually this glorifying God for his mercy is saying... You, that you don't have to keep to the law is something which you ought to give God some praise for, is it not? I don't think that's what Paul means by that. Oh. I don't think it's the idea of being let off the hook from the law. I think it's the idea that it was unthinkable for most people that Gentiles could become full-blown mm. members of the family of God yeah. if they're not Israelite. Mm-hmm. Again, Full-blown members, whether you have to keep the law or not, I think that was kind of beside the point. It was simply the idea. Again, there were lots of places, and I don't want this. This is not anti-Semitism. This is just the people of God struggling through who they are and who we are in relationship to everybody else. But it's, it was unthinkable that, again, there were proselytes and there were people who kind of converted, but, you know, they had different statuses. Judaism was (laughs) – here's the thing about Christianity, you guys, that I I, I mull over and I, 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 I wonder at and I'm in awe at. And I I think I'm right in saying this. Christianity is the first religion on the face of the earth, certainly the first major one, that was not based in ethnicity. And I can't think of a single other religion that has ever existed prior to Christianity that was not primarily ethnic or nationalistic, right? Every religion is tied to a people and to a place. Only Christianity says it's all races, all peoples, all ethnicities, are drawn into this. Yes, it came out of Judaism, of course, for the sake of all of the nations, which inevitably is going to bring up a lot of problems because that's never happened before. It really hasn't, right? And for the most part in the ancient world, and especially the ancient Near East, empires, nations, kingdoms were all directly attached to their gods. Mm -hmm. You were a part of this kingdom because you believed in their gods. And these gods were directly attached to the political and military realities of these nations. Never before had a religion thought 
to break down all these barriers and become a universal thing. No one had dreamt of doing that. Right? Yeah. You're, you're mulling over that. Well, I was I just think. thinking, some religions are probably syntheses of tribal religions, which in fact formed a nation or people. Yes. I mean, Hinduism is a great example, right? But prior to Christianity. No, 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 I know. But d yeah. doesn't Hinduism predate Christianity? Oh, yeah, certainly. Yeah, like Hinduism is, is the amalgamation of various kind of tribal cultic practices that form begin to form a sort of synthetic whole. Yes. Synthesize. But that's actually the opposite, right? Whereas Christianity... It's kind of the opposite. Yeah, no. So, yeah, I think yeah. you're absolutely right. Yeah. Which is just fascinating. And yeah. again, if we if we remember that, because again, we kind of take this for granted, especially people in this part of the world where we are with the ethnic backgrounds that we presumably have, we don't have to worry about this much. We just don't think about it. We're the kind of other end of this question. Um, but if you're on the front end of that question, this is a real thing. This is, this is hard to wrap here. New, yeah. Entirely new. Mm -hmm. Completely novel. So number one, Jesus became a servant to the Jewish people to fulfill the promises he made to the Jewish people. And number two, so that the Gentiles might glorify God for yeah. his mercy. That, yeah. oh my gosh, there is one God who has allowed everyone to be a part of this family. Yeah. Which again... It sounds it could sound like a bumper sticker if you think about the fact if you forget the fact that this is unheard of yeah. in the world. So what he's going to do now, it, it, and this is where it seems like he's just going to kind of cherry pick some scriptures and throw them out. He doesn't. He very methodically at the very end of this letter, as he closes the whole story, he's going to bring them together and show from the Jewish scriptures that this has always been a part of God's plan. Because remember, that's his underlying theme here, that God is faithful and trustworthy to his promises from the beginning. And that he's telling his principal argument here. In this paragraph is to the Jewish Christians because they're the ones with whom the Jewish scripture will resonate, right? Yes. I don't know if you could separate it that neatly, though. Number one, um, I think the process of people coming into the church was a lot more in-depth and intense than it is nowadays. Yes, so I think yeah. the Gentiles would have very well known yeah. the Hebrew scriptures. But also, I think he really very much wants the Hebrews to hear, or the Gentiles to hear this as well. Like, to whatever you're being told, mm. this is what the scriptures say. Oh, yeah, whatever you've sure. been taught or whatever you're hearing murmured about yeah. by these people who are a part of the chosen people of God, right. this is what their holy book says. Right. So, it, it, yeah, it's a both and, though. So look at what he says, and we'll, we'll kind of close up on this note. Um, as it is written. So those two things, to show God's truthfulness and to confirm the promises to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise thee among the Gentiles and sing to thy name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, for, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all Gentiles. And let all the peoples praise him. And further, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come, he who rises to rule the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all the joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. So this is a message of hope. Now, you almost get the impression in this, Paul just like got out his little concordance and he's like, okay, where can I find the word Gentile, right? And he's just like, okay, <laughs> here's four passages. Great, I'll throw them out there. But what he's done is really, really systematic. And, and again, we'll kind of close up on this. Uh, do you guys know what our Hebrew friends call their Bible? Torah? Uh, no, that sometimes is shorthand. <laughs> Confound it. Midrash. It's called the Tanakh. Tanakh. You guys Tanakh. Heard that yes, uh -huh. okay. yeah. Uh -huh. Do you know what the word Tanakh is? So you can go on Amazon and search for Tanakh and you yeah. find a bunch of Hebrew Bibles. Tanakh is an acronym, mm -hmm. um, T-N-K, because in Hebrew, there's actually no written vowels. So you have to kind of insert the vowels. So T-N-K. And T-N-K is an acronym that stands for the three major parts that make up the Hebrew scriptures. So T stands for what you just said. Tetra, te Torah. Torah. The Torah. <laughs> maybe, tetra, 
Kramaton? Is that yeah, what you're, that's, that's the name of God. Right. Yeah, the Torah. And what is, formally speaking, the no, Torah? No, I was going to say tetrahedron. What's that? Not it's that. A it's a okay. shape. It's a geometric shape. It. <laughs> okay. Torah? Yeah, the Torah. What is the Torah, though? The law. Uh, yes. The but, first but, oh, five books. Yeah, the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay. Sometimes called the Pentateuch. Pentateuch. Oh, That's what I was going to yeah. say. Pentateuch and Torah are the exact yeah. same thing. Okay. okay. So what is foundational of the scriptures? It's the Torah, the Pentateuch, those first five books, right? They kind of form the prehistory and all the stuff. Yeah, blessed is the man who meditates on the Torah, yeah, on the Torah. The Lord, day and night. Sometimes it is used as a shorthand for everything. Yeah. But the reason it's the law, the law par excellence shows up in Deuteronomy. That would be great for heart. someone's coronation, am I right? I think that was supposed to be. Oh, I, I was about to get nerdy. No, that was uh, that was something. That's not the Davidic that was, King's coronation. That was from the Davidic King's coronation. If you want to learn more about that, listen to the Psalm season of Sunday school. Psalm season, which is right. actually pretty good. It, I, it's not so t- Torah. Torah N stands for. Anybody know? This is a hard one. Nevi'im. Nevi'im. Not Nebuchadnezzar. I've never heard Nevi'im. that. Nevi'im. Nevi'im. Nevi'im is the Hebrew word that means prophets. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That so, makes sense. And the Hebrews would divide it as the former prophets and the latter prophets. Yeah. So if you think about Joshua and Judges and First and Second Kings and Samuel, those are all considered prophetic books. Yeah. They're the former prophets. Because a prophet, remember, in the, for the Hebrews, it's not just somebody who tells the future. Yeah. It's someone who gives us insight into what yeah, God is doing in the world. Yeah, the presence of God in the world. Yeah. So those books are all considered prophetic. And then the formal, like Isaiah, Jeremiah, those are Amos, the latter Obadiah. prophets. Amos. Obadiah. So the middle part of the scriptures is the Nevi'im, the prophets. And then the third, the K, the K is the word Ketuvim, Ketuvim, which mm-hmm. literally just means writings, yeah. which sounds like the junk drawer, but it's not. It means like the Psalms, um, which are songs, which we have a great season in Sunday school, uh, the Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature, the Proverbs, yeah. wisdom sayings. So that makes up the third chunk of what is the Hebrew scriptures. So Tanakh, just a little crash course in that. Why do I point all this out, Scott? The reason I do that is that what Paul has done is very systematically. Oh, taking some piece. from each T and N. Exactly. And yeah, he goes first through the Psalms. Uh, no, through Deuteronomy. His first quote is through Deuteron- Deuteronomy, which is the Torah, but also the law par excellence, which is going to be what a lot of this book is about. And then the about. next part is from the uh, Isaiah. Yeah, which is the um, the prophets. next the next one, the prophets. Yeah. And then he goes to the Psalms a couple times. So what he's trying to do is not just kind of give you like, oh, here's a grab bag of scripture yeah, passages right. that cool. say Gentile. He's saying from beginning to end, from Alpha to Omega, right, from A to Z, this has been God's intent. So if you're worried. That if you're worried that God has sort of forgotten the Hebrew people, if you're worried that because he's now moved on to the Gentiles, you've been replaced somehow, look at the scriptures and see this proves the faithfulness of God. And what that means for the community is that not only, well, you know, we're all believers in Jesus, we should all get along. He's going to say, no, it is a matter of God's integrity that you figure this out because it's not like, oh, what a nice add Because this is the divine to. plan. This is the divine you plan. You have to live it. And like it or not, you are the protagonist the of, of this of the divine, divine plan. plan. Yeah, right, yeah. Which is higher stakes than you need to get along with each other because God is love and you yeah. should love each other. Which is true. That's not yeah. untrue. But what he's saying is something far different and I, far more important. I do that with my children, right? I tell my children all the time, like... God willed us to be a family, so you have to get along because it's God's will, right? Yes, that's yeah. exactly it. God willed that you guys who hate each other, and you guys don't like the you know pork breath people over there, and you guys don't like those right. you know Torah believing people over there. Right. God, what, what did you say? You said it so well. Willed it for us to be a family. He willed it for us to be a family. Yeah. 
which is a really important message. And that is what he's then going to go back to chapter one and piece by piece show you that God has done. Wow. And he's going to show you exactly how that is before he gets to the so what. Here. Isn't it amazing how much um, depth and richness there is in scripture? I realize how silly that sounds when I say it out loud, but isn't it amazing how much depth and richness there it, is in scripture? It is amazing. I mean, in, in uh, the readings right now, they're, it's Romans, right? And the, sometimes I feel like the readings in church, if when it's yeah, like from the letter of the Romans, it's like, I greet you and God is Whoa. so, and it's just like, oh my gosh, right. we're going to get to the, yeah. you know what I mean? And, right. and there's so much get to depth the story. here. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. My favorite part of Sunday school is that things that I would just skim over yeah. suddenly come alive with so much depth. Yes. And yeah. Thank and the things that, that we often skip over are the ones that the original audiences would, would have, have been zeroed like, Whoa, in the most. Geez, like, can you yeah. believe this is provocative? Yeah. Yes. So right. what are we going to talk about next week that's provocative? So next week, we're going to again go back to the beginning and what Paul is going to do from chapter one through chapter three is basically, he's basically going to start with the bad news. Because again, we're dealing with a lot of very big-headed people, presumably, who are thinking, I believe I belong in charge. No, I belong in charge, and you're worse than I am, and you're lucky I let you in, blah, blah, blah. So he's going to rip them all apart. Okay. And he's going to be, and this is where the Roman road, you know, is not untrue, but it's like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, you both stink. Yeah. And neither of you actually have any right to be. This is where the mercy piece comes in that we just talked about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're glorifying God for his mercy. You Jews, too, should glorify God for his mercy if you actually understood your story. Yeah. Right. And what a mess we all are. And again, mm -hmm. it's not about the Jews. It's about the people of God. Yeah. Often we fall short. Yeah. And we mess it up. So he's going to tear them down, and then he's going to build them up and be like, if you actually it, – it's the analogy a professor of mine always gave. Imagine you – and I'll, I'll leave you with this. Imagine you go to the doctor one day and you go in for a physical or something and you find out through this physical that you have, I forget how the stages work, like stage three cancer, right? Things are very bad and you have a few months to live. Yeah. You had no idea that has happened. You had yeah. no idea that any of this was going on. And the doctor tells you, but good news, we've just found the cure. Yeah. And I'm going to give it to you right now, and everything is fine. And you're like, oh, well, that was weird. <laughs> like, yeah, why didn't uh, you? <laughs> okay. Which is a different reality than if you've been struggling and suffering under the weight of an illness or a family member who has had cancer and watched them deteriorate yeah. and then find out, oh, but we have the cure. That's a different reality than, oh, I didn't know I was sick to begin with and yeah. now I've been cured. Cool. I'm going to go about my life. Yeah. He needs to show them and really stress to them that the reality of sin gone haywire in the world has affected you more deeply than you realize. And if you get that, if you feel the weight of that, then you can appreciate what Jesus has done. Yeah. But you're both so big-headed, you've ignored it from yeah. both sides. So that's what we're going to look at next time. Wow, Great. that's the weight of a hippopotamus. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. This has been another exciting episode of Sunday School. We will be back next week for all of that. It will be fantastic. Dr. Powell, thanks. I'm your host, J.D. Flynn. I'm Kate Oliveira. Sunday School is a production of Pillar Media and that NJD production. Our executive producer is also Kate Oliveira. <laughs> you guys have the same name. That's so cool. It is. It is. People <laughs> get confused. Our yeah. Sunday School teacher is Scott Powell, and we will be back. God bless you guys. <laughs> <laughs>